This evening I want to talk about living an intentional life. In the face of immense suffering, loss, grief, fear, I think we've probably all known moments of a very heartfelt, a very spontaneous, a very unhesitating compassion. Moments when we simply reach out to another person to touch them, to embrace them, to comfort them. A person who is at times being asked to bear an anguish that feels unbearable. I think we know in those moments we're not particularly concerned with, you know, offering a prescription, a solution, how to fix it, how to explain it. But I think part of those moments of that very profound compassion is, is such a deep sense of being present. And those moments when we taste them, I think they are some of the most profound moments of connectedness and immediacy that we can ever know or have ever known. Equally in reverse, I think in the most desolate moments of our own lives where there's heartache and loneliness and grief and sorrow, most of us, if we've been fortunate, have known what it is to be touched by the compassionate care of another. And I think we can sense the immense power within compassion to heal, to feel less alone, to offer refuge. And these moments, as precious as they are, can also feel so fleeting and almost accidental. And too often, I think we are even more familiar with other responses in the face of suffering, whether in others or in ourselves, the responses of fear, disconnection, but I think more often the feeling of helplessness, of not knowing how to help, not knowing what to offer to ourselves or to another. We can experience instead the, the full spectrum of emotions of resistance that we can possess because this, the specter of pain, our response is to flee. Now, in this, in this teaching, compassion is really given an equal value as wisdom is given. It is why we practice, and in this teaching, this path, it's considered to be the most noble quality of a human heart. But the other difference is, I think, in this teaching, in this path, compassion is not considered to be an accident. You know, something that we bump into if we're fortunate. But instead, it's really much more considered to be a cultivation, a path, and a practice. And I want to just briefly visit two encounters, so many encounters with compassion, but I want to visit 
two encounters with compassion that have left such a, an enduring impression on my own heart. And some of you have sp- heard me speak about one of these in the past. When I was a teenager, I lived in a refugee community in India for, for several years amongst a group of people who had uh, experienced levels of hardship and, and suffering that I think would devastate most of us. Loss of their families, their homes, their, their culture, suffered violence and abuse, and had found sanctuary in India. And what was so extraordinary for me is the way in which their hearts seemed to be so intact, the way that they exuded a, a, a sort of remarkable calmness and peace and care in every action. And this puzzled me enormously. I couldn't make that link of that response to suffering and to pain. Second encounter was much more recent when my, my elderly father last fall had an emergency triple heart bypass and he was in Canada and I was in England and there was some period of time before I could get there and he was in intensive care of course after the surgery and, and I would call the unit there, you know, like at two in the morning their time. And I was astonished, absolutely astonished, by the compassion and the kindness of the nurses on that unit. That at two in the morning they would feel fine to, you know, be on the end of the phone with me, talk through every step of his treatment, talk about how they were sitting with him and stroking his head and holding his hand. And and even in that post-operative sort of psychosis or delirium that many people have after open heart surgery, when my father, somewhat true to form, um, managed to put one of the nurses in the emergency room. (coughs) (laughs) And I was falling all over myself, apologizing, and sort of like totally embarrassed. (laughs) And, And they would just reassure me. They would just say, it's not him not his fault. It's the drugs. (laughs) And when I reflect on both of these situations, the reality of the refugee community and, and the compassion of the intensive care nurses, what was so clear is that the compassion that they could live with, the compassion they could embody was not accidental. But that compassion shared equally with the living of an intentional life, of knowing what their hearts were committed to. I know in that refugee community, there's probably many responses and reactions those people could have had and maybe did have to feeling abused or or, or they could have felt rage, they could have felt hatred, they could have felt resentment, they could have felt fear. But it, it was very clear that there was something that they valued much more than that. And what they valued much more was compassion, was kindness, 
was actually the intactness of their own hearts as being the most liberating and ennobling path they could commit to. I think for those intensive care nurses, <coughs> I'm sure there are many attitudes they could bring to their work, indifference, weariness, habit. But there was a genuine sense that they also knew that compassion and kindness was as crucial to the healing of their patients and the well-being of their patient's family as all the medical skill and expertise they could offer. Now, this is a path, this is a, a, a teaching, really, that invites all of us to live an intentional life, to acknowledge that intention, commitment, is the forerunner of everything. It's the forerunner of our, our speech, the forerunner of our actions, the forerunner of our choices, the forerunner of the quality of relationship that we form with others and with ourselves and with every moment in our life. It is acknowledging that, you know, with, with every word and thought and act, no matter how invisible we might feel in this world, that with every word and thought and act, we, each of us are leaving a footprint upon the world and upon our own life. Every word and thought and act we engage in and also those that we don't engage in. Ripples out, affecting everyone and everything around us in ways that we can't always see. And in this path, we are truly asked and invited to leave a footprint of compassion and kindness. We're also asked to cultivate the intention of, of letting go of simplicity the intention to make even every footprint in this world lighter and lighter. I, I'm sure that we all recognize that it's all too easy for our minds and our hearts and thus our lives also to be governed not by so much by intention but by impulse and reactivity. I'm sure we've experienced here feeling the flow of, of mental states and emotions and reactions surging through our minds and, you know, finding, finding voice in our speech and our actions and our choices. Notice how easy it is when, when we do feel anxious to, to just hide or, or just to avoid or to obsess. Notice how easy it is when we feel irritated or threatened, you know, not so much here, fortunately, but in our life, you know, how words of ill will just seem to fall out of our mouths. You know, there's nothing intentional about it. It's like that Zen saying when they say, I open my mouth and some sorrow jumps out. And it, and as very often we, we can feel, you know, really quite powerless before those surges because they happen so quickly. You know, they seem so automatic, you know, that we act out our mental states upon the stage of the world. That if we moment of feeling discontented, you know, we, we react to subdue the discontent. And you know what is in those moments of impulse? Also, it's actually not really how we wish to be. 
And it's actually not how we wish to live. It's not how we, we wish to relate or how we wish to speak. But this is what an accidental life feels like. When our life, our hearts, our mind feel to be governed by the most predominant emotion or habit of the moment. And we can see an accidental life often feels to leave a very big footprint, not only upon the world, but upon our own sense of confidence and possibility. The footprint of impulse, you know, the footprint of an accidental life that is often left in our hearts and minds in in the feelings of regret, you know, remorse, the feelings of failure, the feelings of self-judgment. And it's very rare that an accidental life actually feels like a, a very free life. Instead, it much more feels to be imprisoned in a world Uh, or imprisoned by the power of our impulses and the reactions of our own mind. I'm sure that we would acknowledge, you know, and agree the very fact of us being here really is an embodiment of the reality that we all hold very deeply treasured values. That we all hold very deeply treasured values of of kindness, of respect, of integrity, of compassion, of understanding. And you notice that the power of impulse or the feeling of being governed by impulse, what it does is to sabotage those intentions and values that we do hold most dearly, that we value most deeply. In the reality of us being here, all of us with our very different stories and our our very different lives manifest a longing to live a life that is truly aligned with our most deeply treasured intentions. That is what brings us on a retreat. I think it what brings us back into the hall to sit once more with you know, an aching back or an uncooperative mind. I mean, you notice we don't take roll call here, and yet you keep showing up. Isn't that amazing, you know? And and I don't think it's because of the entertainment value, and, 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 and it's not because of the certificates you won't be getting. And this is actually not what most of us would describe as a vacation. In a, in, in reality, it's one of the most demanding things a human being can do is to sit, have the willingness to sit with their own hearts, their own minds, their own bodies, you know, even for an hour, never mind all of the hours that you have sat and walked here so far. It is, I think, a longing, sometimes it's not even one we articulate, a longing to live with compassion, with kindness, a longing to find within ourselves an end of suffering, a longing to find the ways to form loving, caring relationships, a longing for freedom. And that longing is as timeless as human beings. A longing is really as timeless as human beings. And in this tradition, in this teaching, 
That longing is described by the Buddha as the longing to live a noble life and to walk an ennobling path. And I feel like it's so important amongst all the changes, all the ups and downs, all the highs and lows we encounter on a retreat and that we encounter in our lives to remember those intentions and to remember that longing because it's so easy to forget. You know, sometimes it it, it can even be helpful every time we begin to sit, every time we begin to walk, to ask ourselves, why am I here? What is this time really dedicated to? What is this time committed to in the service of? This is what I call holding a long view. You know, it's knowing that you cannot judge your practice by the events of a single sitting or a single walking. Just as you know that you cannot judge or describe yourself by the contents of your mind or by the contents of a single experience. It is why the Buddha talks so much about walking a path and not just about practice a path that has a beginning and the very fearless acknowledgement that there is distress and unsatisfactoriness in this life. It's a path that has a direction, a deeply held sense of aspiration within it to cultivate understanding, to cultivate a, a liberated heart no longer gripped by greed, hatred, and delusion. And it is a path that has a fruition This path has a fruition in the embodiment, the embodiment of a heart that knows liberation, an embodiment in unconditional compassion, unshakable balance. And it's a path in which everything matters. It's a path which embraces every single aspect of our life. That is why it is about living an intentional life. The Buddha described it like this. He says, this noble life we live does not have gain, honor, and renown as its goal, or the attainment of virtue as its goal, or the attainment of concentration as its goal. But it is the unshakable liberation of the heart that is the goal of this noble life, its heartward and its end. The Buddha described this sense of aspiration as the essence of a free life. And there is, I feel, a very undeniable link between aspiration and intention. You know, it is intention that rescues aspiration from just being a romantic ideal or a fantasy. So there's an undeniable link between aspiration and intention, just as I think there's an equally powerful and undeniable link between intention and the quality of our own life and our own heart and mind and relationship on a moment-to-moment level. Now, I think I'm probably not unusual in saying that when I began on this path, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. 
I didn't know why I was doing it. I didn't know where it was going. I, I didn't even really know what was going on, quite frankly. But I did it anyway, you know, and I began in a very ritualized tradition, you know, not like here, you know. So here I was merrily performing 100,000 prostrations, you know, doing 100,000 and more mantras, you know, doing all these visualizations of these incredibly elaborate thousand-armed deities. Totally confused. (laughs) Not a clue what I was doing. But I just did it anyway, you know. But I was also pretty aware that the confusion I felt in what I was doing in the practice was pretty much described the same confusion I felt in my life anyway. So I may as well have felt confused doing the practice as doing something much more unskillful. (laughs) But what I did know, or what I really did know, you know, because sometimes I think, like, what, you know, like, what is it kind of like held me in there? Just like you probably wonder sometimes, what is it that makes me hang in here? What is it that makes me hang in here? And, you know, I, I did have a sense. You know, there was some sense. I mean, there was a sense of desperation, but there was also a sense of, of longing to have a clear and friendly heart. To, you know, the longing to know what I was doing. Like, that was even enough. Just the longing to know what I was doing. And I found that over the years, as I listened to the teaching, I, I really did get a sense of how very timeless that longing was. And that even though I even hardly had words to describe it, it was if the teaching was giving a language to that longing of my own. It was, as if, it was as if the teaching was actually giving a sort of shape to that longing, a sense of meaning to that longing. Even so, there was still a gap, I would say, a chasm, uh, an immense gap between that embryonic longing and my capacity to embody it. There was an enormous chasm. I mean, I found myself, you know, really incredibly excited and inspired to to hear all the teachings about transcendent experiences and and to hear the stories of these remarkable, heroic yogis, you know. And I felt incredibly inspired by the teachings of liberation. But I have to say, on a more immediate level, I was even more touched and inspired to see people who actually seemed to live compassion, who actually seemed to live patience, who actually seemed to live generosity and happiness. And yet even in that, in somehow, in some ways, it still seemed all kind of remote, you know, when my, my sort of agenda, my menu was a lot more basic, like how to get up in the morning without dread, you know, to know a way of being where I wasn't engulfed by storms of my own mind, you know, and, and like just a moment of peace would have been an amazing thing. But the more I listened, the more I realized that the teaching I was listening to was both about me and in some ways it was really not about me. Like what was really being talked about were, were like the, this, this, the universality of fear and dread and struggle and suffering and also the universality of the longing to be free 
from fear and dread and struggle and suffering. The universality of the longing for happiness and peace and freedom. And I also really for myself did appreciate that the path was for me going to take a little time, you know, and perhaps a lifetime. And it was very important for me to realize that in truth the nobility of the path was not so much about the achievement or getting some experience or getting some attainment, but in, in many ways the nobility of the path was about loving the journey. That the nobility of the path was somehow loving waking up. That the nobility was somehow just loving the, the, the fact that just so slowly there was bringing together this sense of aspiration and intention and embodiment. The, the Buddha talks about three steps of insight. You know, and, and the first step of insight is, is to listen to the teaching and to have an intellectual agreement with it. This, this is actually very important. You know, if we sat up here and told you that liberation was going to be delivered by a UFO, you know, and we were all hanging out here waiting for it, you know, m- m- most of us, you know, would think, no, these people are nuts. <laughs> you know, so it is actually very, very deeply important that there is an intellectual agreement with the teaching that you can see actually this makes sense you know this this actually makes sense so now i knew that was very true for me when i listened to each other this actually makes sense the second step of insight is to take that listening and place it within the context of your own experience and check it out moment to moment is it true is it true is it true in my own experience does it does it hold up in the light of my own experience. And the third step of insight is embodying what we understand to be true. And I think this is probably the most challenging step of insight. But it is also all of those moments when we embody what we understand to be valuable and true, those are the moments that gladden our hearts and truly inspire us. Now, the Buddha started his teaching with a very simple observation. By looking at his own life, by looking at his own mind and heart, by looking at the lives of all of those around him, he talked about this very simple reality that there is unsatisfactoriness and distress and suffering in life. He called it the first noble truth. The Buddha is not the only one that talks about this, is it? I mean, it's written in Greek tragedies, you know, it's Shakespeare goes on and on about it, ancient spiritual thinkers, contemporary philosophers, and indeed our neighbor next door. Now, often we turn the the inevitably, that first awareness of unsatisfactoriness, we, we, we often at first turn it into a question of just, why is life so difficult? You know, sometimes we turn it on to other questions of why is life unfair or why is this happening to me, but why is life so difficult? I have a colleague, and this is a rather depressing statement, but I have a colleague 
He, he said, we just get the hang of being here and think we've learned a thing or two about life and then we have to get used to the idea of decay, death and not being here any longer. <laughs> he didn't actually mean it to depress us. It sounds kind of bleak, but you know we all acknowledge that in between the beginnings and the endings of our story that, of course, we all have many moments of delight and joy and love and happiness and connectedness and we all have our own measure of adversity and affliction and sorrow in loss in illness in disappointment rejection with just the mind that drives us crazy and even the confusion that besets us even when we get what we want and we discover it doesn't do the trick doesn't do the trick. It doesn't quite deliver the ease and the happiness we imagined. The Buddha also say that there's ways of reacting to the reality of our lives, to sorrow and struggle, that can inadvertently create even more difficulty for ourselves. Almost if the awareness of unsatisfactoriness or the awareness of suffering has two children. One child of that awareness of suffering is to flounder, to feel helpless, to avoid, to blame, to try to become, to get agitated, try to use a little craving. And we discover that many of those reactions actually perpetuate the cycle of distress. It's a very important insight for us that many of those reactions simply perpetuate the cycle of distress. The other child or the other children of that awareness of suffering is compassion and intention. For some people, their first step into a compassionate life is actually through a sense of outrage, a sense of injustice, outrage at the injustice in the suffering in life. Now, compassion and intentional life asks for something more than just an awareness of suffering, because an awareness of suffering is hardly news to us. Compassion and intention asks us to change the lens of how we hold that awareness. That is why it's called the first noble truth rather than just bad news. It's meant to be an ennobling truth, the reality that there is discontent and dissatisfaction in life. It's meant to be an ennobling truth because it asks us to respond to suffering, to acknowledge the possibility of bringing suffering to an end, to acknowledge the possibility of bringing to an end the turmoil of our own hearts, to acknowledge the possibility of bringing to an end the causes of suffering. And that first noble truth is ennobling if it leads us to commit to that intention and to align our lives with that intention. If that intention to bring suffering to an end does indeed become our aspiration and even our life. The Dalai Lama 
once said that I cannot pretend to feel compassion all of the time. But I consider it to be the most noble quality of a human being, and I aspire to it. You notice one thing that Dalai Lama, I've never heard him say, that, uh, you know, when I wake up in the morning, it'd be really lucky if I bumped into a moment of compassion. You know, you would probably never hear, Gandhi would have never probably said, if it's a good day, you know, I won't strike back at the British. You know, you, you probably wouldn't have heard, you know, the nuns around the world practicing right now saying, I'll practice today if I feel like it. You know, if I'm having a good day. None of us wants to struggle. None of us wants to be lost in self-preoccupation. None of us wants to be filled with greed or rage or judgment or hatred. None of us gets up in the morning inviting confusion or anxiety or doubt into our hearts. The fostering of an intentional and a compassionate life is a seed that we plant and that we nurture in the earth of our lives, in the times of habit and in the times when we just don't feel like it. We do acknowledge that impulse and reactivity are habits. You know, neuroscientists tell us that the tendencies towards attack and defense or gratification are pretty much hardwired into our psyches. They're tendencies that, through our evolutionary journey, serve to ensure our survival. You only need to look at the turkeys. (laughs) What do they spend their days doing? You know all that strutting stuff? They're not just showing you their feathers. They're they're telling you you should be scared of them. But now those tendencies of attack and defense and gratification, they don't ensure our survival anymore. All they ensure is our isolation. All they ensure anymore is our our discontent and our confusion. Now those same neuroscientists tell us that these habitual tendencies are not life sentences. That with practice we transform our psyches. With practice, actually, we transform our brains. You know, we transform our minds more inclined towards compassion, kindness, and empathy, qualities that ensure not only our survival, but our well-being and connectedness. Today, the, the species most at risk of extinction are those who do not have family groups. Those who are most isolated most alone. 2,600 years ago, the Buddha pointed towards these same tendencies of, of attack, defense, gratification as being pretty much the root of all our confusion and suffering, also the roots of our most of our impulsive and unconscious behavior that leads us to live a reactive life. Now, none of us wants to go through life like a turkey in a just strutting our feathers, warding everything off. But the Buddha also pointed out that no matter how deep these underlying tendencies are, no matter how habitual, there is a way out. There is a way to liberation. That the heart of compassion 
the path, a life of responsiveness is indeed not an accident, but a moment-to-moment cultivation of intentionality. First, there's the necessary aspiration to conceive of the very deep and very genuine possibility of our own liberation. To conceive of the very deep and very genuine possibility of awakening our own hearts and lives, no matter how long our history of fear, no no matter how long our history of feeling incapable or unworthy, it is an unconditional possibility and invitation. The Buddha once said, if I did not know that this was possible for you, I would not ask it of you. But because I know this is possible for you, therefore I ask it of you. I mean, we know that there can be shadow sides to aspiration. You know, one shadow side is to turn aspiration into ambition and striving for new, new experiences. You know, it's, sometimes it's just more aversion in a more enlightened language. But there's another shadow side or near enemy to aspiration, which is, which is actually being willing to settle for too little. Being willing to settle for too little. Being willing to settle for a path of minimized possibilities, almost a kind of resignation. But on the footsteps of genuine aspiration, there is intention. On the footsteps of intention, there is a commitment to that intention. It is almost as if intention is the way that we commit our hearts to our aspirations. And intention rescues us from despair. It's what lightens our hearts. There's a poem I wanted to read you by Rilke. How surely gravity's law, strong as an ocean current, takes hold of even the strongest thing and pulls it towards the heart of the world. Each thing, each stone, blossom, child, is held in place. Only we in our arrogance push out beyond what we belong to for some empty freedom. If we surrendered to Earth's intelligence, we could rise up rooted like trees. This is what the things can teach us, to fall, patiently to trust our heaviness. Even a bird has to do that before it can fly. I know for myself not to underestimate the size of the cloth. It is no easy path to live an intentional life guided by kindness and compassion and renunciation, the commitment not to cling to anything. But just, you know, we ref- I, re- I often reflect on the alternative, you know. How is a life that is governed by your will and anxiety and reactivity where that holds dominion? That's an anxious life, living in an anxious heart. And there's too many regrets, too many regrets. The Buddha often talks about a life of freedom as a life without residues. A life without residues. You know, and a life that is guided by kindness and compassion and, and, and not clinging is really a life without residues. It leaves no imprint of our hearts of if only and I wish and I could or regret or guilt or shame. It, intention is a moment-to-moment 
commitment. I think it's very important to acknowledge that. It's not just some lofty thing we make once in our life and that's it. It, it is like, what would that be if our first thought when we walk up in the morning and go into our day is to remind ourselves of kindness and compassion and not clinging? What would it be to remind ourselves when we arrive in our cushion, our walking path, to remember why we are there? It, all, it takes that reminding to crack the power of impulse. It's to remember that everything, everything deserves compassion, including our judgments, including our anxieties, including our distress, including our feelings of unworthiness. They also deserve compassion. It's remembering there's something more important. There's something we value more deeply than our lives being guided by impulse and those tendencies that don't serve us well. You know, and we don't have to wait for the big tsunamis of anxiety or aversion. How about all the little moments, all the little moments where we find ourselves veering away from what we most deeply value, often out of fear, often out of fear. It is like Deepana, Deepama, one of the wonderful teachers that have inspired many of us, said, the whole path of mind, mindfulness is this. Whatever you are doing, be aware of it. Whatever you are doing, be aware of it. Remember to remind ourselves there is nothing of greater significance that we can dedicate ourselves to in this life other than kindness and compassion and freedom and to take that knowing into our lives. To take it into our lives. This is a committed life. An unconscious life is also something that we practice. Sometimes we practice confusion. Sometimes we practice anxiety, not, not, not because we want to, because of the habit of it. And, and mindfulness is really turning the tides of those habits to what really serves us well. And we begin to discover within ourselves that very unhesitating, natural compassion, kindness, not as an accident, but as an embodiment of what we know so deeply within our own hearts. I want to end with a poem by Mary Oliver called Mindful. Every day I see or I hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teaching as these? the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. Just a moment or two quietly together.
It is the unshakable liberation of the heart that is the goal of this noble life, its heartward and its end. Thank you for your attention. Um, it's so walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.